0: You are now listening to the Retirement Lifestyle show with Roshan Lugani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work towards your ideal retirement. Roshan Lungani and Eric Olson are certified financial planner practitioners that serve clients across the US. They offer financial planning and investment advice through Arate Wealth Advisors LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through Arate Wealth Management LLC, Member FINRA, SIPC, and NFA. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams.
1: Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm Roshan Langani, and I'm joined by Eric and Adrian. We're here to help you achieve your dreams and have a happy and fulfilling retirement. Today we're going to talk about the market volatility because things have been going crazy with the markets the last few weeks. So Eric, let me uh, ask you why do you think this is such an important topic for our listeners?
2: Well, I, I don't know about you, Roshan, but I think more often uh, more often when I get calls from clients that they are that they're uh, uncertain. Or, or frightened. It has. It's at those moments when markets abruptly take a big move down, like they've done in the last uh, few weeks. So, uh, because a lot of times in those moments of high emotion, people are tempted to deviate from. What is their otherwise well disciplined plan crafted in the kind of the cool and considered moments of sort of low, uh, low volatility? It, it can just in some cases really derail what they're trying to do because they, they quite frankly, in some cases panic or just are trying to relieve the pain even though that may be counterproductive for them in the long run. So that's why I think it's good for us to to talk about this in these moments because hopefully some of our listeners uh, will will hear this and if they're among that subset of people that are tempted to just you know un- unravel their 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 disciplined plan, then hopefully we can discourage them from doing that.
3: Adrian, do you have anything to add? Yeah, those are some uh, great points, Eric. And I definitely see that aspect of it where the emotional side is really important because when there's a big sell-off, investors feel it more. They're, they're more emotional about it because they, they see all this selling and it, it's difficult for them to grasp But in contrast when the market's you know, going up and there's low volatility. It doesn't impact them more emotionally. So it's definitely, the behavioral side of it is definitely really interesting. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot of great in, information and content out of this podcast, how to really, mm-hmm. you know, navigate through market volatility and these, you know, changing times. Mm-hmm. You and both Roche, touched on things. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, Eric.
1: What
2: were, I was, what you well, yeah, I was just going to ask you, how, what would you add to the question? Why is this an important topic?
1: Yeah, well, first I'll highlight things that you touched on. The word you used, Eric, was frightened. And I think that's uh, an important one. Uh, when people are frightened with what the market is doing, that's when they'll—that's when they will uh, act on emotion versus logic. And Adrian used the term behavioral finance, mm-hmm. and I think that that's uh, a very important one where mm-hmm. it's about managing your behavior and how you react. Mm-hmm. So the heightened emotions uh, being. You know, fear that, that's been heightened by the volatility leads people to then um, not manage their behavior as they typically do, which is the behavioral finance aspect. As we're discussing this, too, I thought of something else. If, if you're if you're someone who um, I'd say you're working full time mm-hmm. and uh, you walk in the office on on Monday and your your salary annually is, let's just say, one hundred thousand dollars a year. Keep mm-hmm. them happy. Salary $100,000 a year. You leave the office Friday, and now your salary is $90,000. How would you feel? And I bring that up because a lot of people who are retired, their investments represent their income, mm-hmm. and that's what they feel like. Even though the market has dropped, and there's time for it to recover, and you know they've got plenty of years to retire, all, uh, and so on, they feel uh, like there is now greater uncertainty to their retirement, where is my money going to come from? Mm-hmm. So that's why managing the emotions, the behavioral finance side is very important. Uh, and I think this topic is huge. One of uh, the books that are out there, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham, mm-hmm. that's yeah, it's widely read. Many people say it's the greatest investment book ever written he talks, uh, spends a lot more time talking about managing your temperament and your behavior than it than he does almost on the investing side of things. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, good. So you have some definitions for us, I think.
1: Yeah. I've got a couple things to start just so we're on the same page when we talk and, and then um, uh, a few data points of note. But the first is when we talk about a correction, that's a 10% decline in the market. So the market going down by 10%, the average uh, Correction uh, typically happens every uh, a little under two years. So that's not a rare occurrence. It's usually every two years. Uh, The next thing, a bear market, that's a 20% decline. And that usually happens every three and a half years. A couple uh, data points as to why we're discussing volatility now. We just had the fastest market correction in history. So in six days, the market dropped by 10%. Another data point I thought to highlight why volatility is uh, our topic today is the largest point declines in the market. So the biggest drop in terms of points, all of the top three happened um, in, in March. We're recording this March 11th. So March 2nd, 4th, and 10th. And then the five of the top seven largest point losses has happened, have happened since February 24th. So we've seen wild swings, up up and down. Now, on a percentage basis, they have not been as big as, as some of the things in the past. But when you're seeing the news, if you're just a casual viewer of the market right. and you see the Dow's move X amount of points, right. that's what concerns people.
2: Which, by the way, is one reason I strongly encourage people not to pay attention to the point movements of any index, but instead only the percentage movements of an index. Because According. it does magnify in your mind. Wow, well, we had the biggest point loss in history. Yeah, well, we're we probably we started from the highest point of value of any uh, you know drop of that kind of diet, uh, as well. So anyway, yeah. just a, it's a small point, but I think it does kind of help people calm down a little bit instead of sort of magnifying the sense in their own minds about how fearful the time has become. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And, and I mentioned from a point perspective, this huge yeah. level of volatility. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the percentage change, this what's happened in 2020, we've had we have no days that are in the top 20 of percentage gainers and only one day in the top 20 of percentage losers. Mm. So uh, once again, when you go from a points perspective, we have a lot of. Uh, lot of days making the making the charts so to speak, um a total of ten. If you combine you know top ten gains, top ten losses, we've got ten in there, so half of them. But when you go to percentages, it only one of the days registers. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So well, that's what, good. Good to know. So that. to
1: start with, if you're an investor mm-hmm. um and uh I'm giving a bit of a trick question here. So I guess I'll answer it to not trick anyone, either of you are the listener. (laughs) But my question was going to be, what do you do about it uh, when you have this volatility? And I think the starting point is you plan for it in advance.
2: Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think that is that we should spend a fair amount of time really elaborating that point because you just nailed it. I mean, that's the central point, I, I would think right there.
1: So let's. uh, So, what do you do? So, when when I come into you, Eric, you are managing my money, and I and we're discussing the markets and so on. How are we planning in advance for the market volatility?
2: Well, so I'm going to use the example of a of a client, a real client who will remain unnamed, Mm -hmm. and um and I and then I want to ask you the both of you if you've seen this same sort of thing in in your practice in in the DC area. So um, this client. Um, which, and I don't mean to sound cold, but which essentially recently I fired because I felt like this is not a good, this is not a good match. You're not receptive uh, to the sort of advice that um, I'm bringing. You you deserve a, an advisor who will match up with your outlook on how markets ought to be approached. A but his his thing was anytime he felt that the markets were, um, were buoyant. He wanted to be more aggressive and wondered why he wasn't, uh, be- had started moderate conservative, wondered why he wasn't getting results that matched up with a moderate aggressive portfolio. So then he wanted to be more aggressive. Then the minute the, mar- the, the markets start to have some downward slides, he's freaking out and says he wants to go more conservative. When he hears the Federal Reserve say, "Hey, uh, you know, we're gradually going to be we're gradually going to be uh, raising interest rates again," this is a couple of years back. Oh, well, then that for sure means that uh, bond prices are going to decline. So please, I need you to move a bunch of money out of bonds and into cash, and, and so forth and so on. You can sort of see the storyline here how this works. It's constant changes and constant adjustments such that in in every one of those instances the timing of the emotion driven and to a certain extent the subjectively driven analysis subjectively driven analysis those two, sort of like twi- the one two punch of emotions and subjective analysis led to adverse outcomes for his portfolio and the the more that happens the more upset he he becomes so the um I, I would say that that kind of constant changeability or in tendency to want to adjust the portfolio, adjust the portfolio, adjust the portfolio, adjust the portfolio. It works against the long term um, results that clients want from their portfolios. Now, if you disagree with that, please say so. But well, uh, uh,
1: no, I, I, I'll touch on a couple things. The first thing is when you said you fired the advisor, I I fired the client. I'm sorry. Yes, you fired the client. (laughs) Well, I guess he was trying to be your advisor and tell tell me what to (laughs) do Actually, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, when you fired the client, I I just wanted to note out there, it took me a few years to learn this, and I'll share this with with either you, who it sounds like you know it, and for all of our clients, not everyone's a good fit for you as an advisor. (laughs) And not everyone's a good fit for me as a client, right? So you've got to find somebody that fits what you want to do. And sometimes that fit, uh, I believe, is is the opposite. So I think this client you described really needs someone like you to say calm down and stay the course. Uh, although it sounds like he's so, um, he wasn't listening to you. Right? Right. He was he was he was making so so I I don't know what um, his decisions are. But the other point you made that I think is is worth noting is. Um, no one can time these things like there uh, i've never been able to find someone i've never read a book by someone who got all the timing of the markets right and uh going back to benjamin graham's book he calls that speculation not investing and i fully agree Mm -hmm. so um once you realize you can't time things you stop trying to Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think that's very uh very much worth noting because there's a difference between speculating and investing. Are you an investor or a speculator? Mm-hmm. Make that decision early and then make sure your advisor or where you go to seek advice lines up with that. There's nothing wrong with being a speculator if that's what you want to do. It's just that in my experience, uh, I wouldn't go that
3: route because I have not found many successful people in that space. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are those are some really good points. And, um that example that you uh, gave, Eric, it really shows how emotions can really, you know, affect like a plan. And I like how you, what you said, um, Roshan, is to have a plan in place for when this volatility comes, because it's extremely important. Because during times of, uh, you know, increased volatility, there are more headlines out there. It's all over the news. It's 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 more. You see it more on social media. So that's where this emotion really gets drawn out of, and people want to be. More active and you know, change and have so many questions. And in this example, the risk tolerance is going back and forth. And it's it's really a time where you really need to stick to your plan and really, you know, do your research and seek out that professional advice and really make the best possible decisions that you can at this time. And another important part is you know, you have to see where you have your most exposure to when there's a lot of this volatility going on, see how your portfolio really is going to be affected by all this. So mm-hmm. some real important parts to consider. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take us back to like, a, going back to the point of
1: planning for the volatility. I want to go back to your goals. Cause I, I believe that if you are, if you're focused on those goals and you know, sort of keep your eyes on the prize, so to speak, I think that will help you react, uh, better to these times. Mm-hmm. So when working with a client, even before the investment discussion, and uh, tell me if you follow the same path, but even before we've had a discussion on investments at all, uh, when I begin working with something, someone, it's all about their goals. What, are, what do you want to accomplish?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and um, I think with that, which, which is in, embedded in that is when do those goals need to be funded? Yeah, the time
1: frame—the time frame of the, those goals will will define the time frame of your investments, and then you build around that. So, with us being the retirement lifestyle show and focusing on retirement, mm-hmm. uh, the time frame of your investments are not when your retirement begins, right? right. Your investments last through your life, right? So, a lot of times, uh, someone might think, "Well, I'm saving towards retirement, which is at age." 60 or 65, so I have no risk in my portfolio at, at 60 or 65. That's not accurate. You need you will need some growth in your portfolio beyond that to fund you when you're 99 and 100. Mm-hmm. So your time frame, if you're if you're retiring at 60 and we're using uh, the life expectancy of a uh, of hundred, I know Eric, you and I vary on how we uh, differ yeah. on how we make these selections. Sure. But if we if you're retiring at 60 and we're talking age 100, you've got 40 years to plan for. Mm-hmm. So, um, February, February and March of 2020, hopefully we'll have a minimal to, we'll just be a blip when you're, if you're 60 now in you know, 40 years in 2060, mm-hmm. continue, I'm continuing down the path. You've got your goals defined. So we've mm-hmm. started really early and now we're developing, uh, your portfolio with those goals, goals in mind. And we, in advance want to prepare for volatility what is uh you mentioned time frame eric what are some other important points in determining your constructing your portfolio to prepare for the volatility
2: well all right so time frame and goals uh, but i would say there's two other elements that i think are primary concepts uh, for when, when i have these conversations with clients and uh i would define these two as well, on the one hand risk tolerance and then secondly, risk capacity. So risk tolerance is a statement about your emotional makeup in uh, when it comes to adverse market uh, movements. And if that is really upsetting to someone and that it, it leads them to the point the pain becomes just so unbearable that they know if they suffered that kind of emotional pain, that they would be inclined to uh, uh, pull the, you know, the um, pull the, uh, uh, you know, put a stop to whatever the pain is by shifting their portfolio to cash at that moment. That's probably already by definition at an emotional level to, to dynamic that the, the portfolio is constructed in a way that has too much price dynamism to it. And so that, that's probably overdoing it for that client. But the other question is their risk capacity. So someone who has, let's say, and a lot of your clients, I think fit this profile where they have, they have a pretty solid pension and they maybe also have some pretty solid, uh, social security income coming in the door. So such that there's relatively little that they would be drawing from as a percentage of their overall, uh, retirement income stream from their portfolio itself. Then they might have uh in some cases they may have no need actually for their for their retirement portfolio because their guaranteed income streams are so strong in that case, they have the capacity to absorb any amount of volatility in their portfolios without really a concern and so uh, so re- but there are other situations where someone might be a gunslinger emotionally and just feel like hey i can t- you know i don't mind the ups and downs, but the truth is. They're close enough to retirement that if, uh, if their portfolio were to take a substantial hit, such as when the Internet bubble burst or such as when the great credit crisis hit, uh, if their portfolio took a big hit like that, that would be really hard for them to um, – it, it would compromise the capacity of their portfolio to to fund all the way out for the next how many every years twenty or thirty years so we have to balance those two things we have to look at the reality I'll call it three those are the financial reality which is the risk capacity we have to we have to also be be mindful as because as Adrian pointed out the behavioral element is associated with their risk tolerance and allow those two uh, to complement each other and then have an influence on the composition of the portfolio
1: i want to explain and simplify these terms that okay sorry <laughs> i
2: thought it would be so simple yeah. <laughs> thank risk you
1: risk tolerance is how much risk you believe you're comfortable taking uh-huh risk capacity is how much uh, of a risk your portfolio can take
2: yeah would you agree yes thank you and,
1: and <laughs> i i add a, a I I go over both things. I'll add on a third element, which is kind of, could kind of be within risk capacity, but I'll add required rate of return.
2: Okay. So,
1: Mm -hmm. so, uh, and I'll explain the difference. If you don't need your assets to retire, right? So your risk capacity could be super aggressive. You could mm-hmm. take the portfolio and be super aggressive mm-hmm. right because you're theoretically growing it for the next generation. Right. But you may be a risk you may be a conservative investor. Right. Uh, your risk tolerance may be conservative. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I said you don't need your assets. Let's say you need a part of it. Mm-hmm. So let's say you do have a required rate of return. You need your portfolio to return. A certain amount to secure your retirement. Mm -hmm. So, I think all three data points are important in determining your portfolio. Mm -hmm. So, uh, once again, risk tolerance, how much risk you're comfortable taking, risk capacity, how much risk your portfolio can take uh, in light of your financial plan and required rate of return, what you need your portfolio to return in order to achieve your goals.
2: And so I'm gonna add a four since you did the required rate of return, cause that's one thing we don't have control over really is what uh, we have, we have a historical guidance as to what the returns will be long run, long run. We have to emphasize that to the a portfolio built this way or built that way. Mm-hmm. But um, we won't know until we actually get there whether that expected return was realized. And so, and we also don't know whether, uh, what inflation will be and how much it'll bite into the actual purchasing power growth that occurred in that. And we also don't have control over tax policy. So depending on, you know, the tax outcomes there, it might be that the, after the, After the uh, Uncle Sam and the state have taken their shares, you know we have we have more or less than we anticipated. So there's a fourth element, which is uh, spending flexibility. Expand on that. Well, I would say if you say, "Look, we're going to divide, we're going to we're going to clearly demarcate those parts of our portfolio that are tending more in the direction of fixed costs." And those that are tending more in the direction of discretionary costs. So Let me give an example. So, if you are you have uh, property taxes, you don't really have much influence over property taxes in the short term. You could move to a smaller place or to a lower property tax state, but pretty much your property tax, assuming you stay where you are and uh, in, in the house that you own, your property taxes are going to be about the same. Whereas on the other hand, your uh, your your uh, bar tab. It has a lot of flexibility to it or your restaurant tab or whatever, you know, the vacation tab. So if you are willing to um, uh, make some adjustments and especially in a down year uh, while you're living, if your portfolio is supporting you in a down year, you might want to say, let's cut back on some of those discretionary expenses. In other words, let's uh, let, we don't have to do the home improvement this year after all. We don't have to take that vacation this year after all. Let's wait until we've had some recovery in our portfolio and it's in a position to support that again.
3: Yeah, that's a great point, Eric. And it really shows how during these times of market volatility, you really it's really good to go back and just reevaluate your financial plan, your um, investments, and even, like you said, your, your spending and all that stuff to really rebalance it all out. Mm-hmm. And I just have a question for you, Roshan, and you, you too, Eric. You see, like, during increased times of market volatility... Um, does do you ever have like a scenario where maybe you have like a very aggressive investor who's like yeah I, I'm okay with taking all these like losses and then when market volatility increases and there's like a sell then they come back saying you know what maybe I'm, I'm not comfortable taking maybe we need to reduce that down having this kind of maybe realization where you think you're this type of risk tolerance but then when you actually experience it it, it really changes
1: Can I, I, I want to jump in and answer your question but I want to touch on two other things I, I think you both you both mentioned. Uh, first, Adrian, you had mentioned how people should revisit their portfolio with what's going on right now, their financial plan and so on. I typically do that every year. Uh, and and I, I say every year, it's not on a 12-month clock. Uh, I typically will work with clients and meet with them two to four times a year. And we're doing that dynamically in those meetings. So I would like to change what you said from... Uh, Revisit these things when things are going down. So I think you've got to constantly revisit them uh, and review your goals. Um, spending flexibility, Eric, I'm going to take the other side on this mm. just because um, I'm hoping we can build a portfolio where spending flexibility isn't necessary. Now, okay. where, where um, I can see your point completely, because if I tell you, Eric, I'm a... I'm a super aggressive investor and you tell me, well, okay, if the markets drop by twenty five percent, you're not on track for your goals, are you willing to cut back on spending? If I say yes, then you know, that's I think spending flexibility is a thing is a thing to add on there. I would just in an ideal scenario, I don't want to tell a retired client to cut back on their spending. Right, And that, that's why I put it that way. So I don't think you're wrong. That mm-hmm. that's, that's an element to, um, to consider. But I don't have many clients that are retired, that are super aggressive, where I think in a down market, we've got to touch on spending flexibility.
2: Okay, so let me ask this. <clears throat> Let's say that you, you, you uh, coming back to the point that you made, and oh, wait, you had said you had, there was a couple more things that you wanted to comment on. So had you finished so, doing that?
1: No, please continue on that. And then I want
2: to come back to Adrian's question. Oh, okay. Sorry, Adrian. Now I'm cutting in front oh, of you. False. False right
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. So uh, you said that um, required rate of return is something that you're examining. And yeah. I think that, that that makes good sense. But let's say that you have a client that says, look, I am wired in such a way that I cannot, I cannot live up to that required rate of return. I'm going to have, you're telling me, you're telling me, Roshan, that I need to have a moderate, aggressive portfolio to get the required rate of return. But I just don't have the stomach for that. Okay, I need to live in a moderate, conservative portfolio. And how would you then respond to them on the spending side?
1: So uh, that's where I, I uh, that's the point where I think we discuss the spending flexibility. OK, so my response to you, then it, it, it could be spending. But my response to you, then, is, Eric, OK, you've either got to work longer. Uh, mm-hmm make more money to save more now Mm -hmm. or spend less now and in the future. Mm -hmm. Right. As opposed to the conversation being, Eric, you've lived off of, and I I love using a hundred thousand because it makes my math easier. So saying mm -hmm. Eric, you've lived off a hundred thousand dollars a year for the last 10 years of your retirement. Now you're 75 and you've got to live the rest of your life off of um, 90,000 or Mm 80,000 because the markets are are down. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a conversation I, um, I I have had that with people it hasn't been because of markets It's been more due to their spending habits, right? That's a conversation that I really don't want to have Uh, You know, it's you as an advisor We have to have these hard conversations and be Mm -hmm. the bearer of bad news at times Mm -hmm. Uh, Right, so that's that's the job But I want to do everything I can similar to the volatility conversation to have that conversation in advance So if you're the person telling me Mm -hmm. uh, your rate of return in order to retire at 60 is 10% a year, that's Mm -hmm. your required rate of return, Mm -hmm. and you're 50 now, Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you at 50, Eric, I don't think retiring at 60 is realistic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. unless you cut back your spending, save more, or have a work longer or have a drastic change. You know, that's where it is. It's not. So do you see the difference in conversation? I It's do. a planning conversation and lower your spending and make adjustments now or be willing to work longer as opposed to saying, okay, you've been retired for 10 years now. You got to cut back on your
2: budget." Uh, oh, see, I completely agree with what you're saying that it's, it's much, much easier to, it's much preferable, let's put it that way, for yeah. the client to be given options. I can work longer, I can reduce my spending, I can cut out maybe what was a major purchase goal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> uh, so that, absolutely, I, I agree with that. What I was thinking of was having somewhat to do more with a circumstance where the either A, the client has really constrained the, the spectrum of choices that are available. Working longer... Or for that matter, in some cases, for early clients who retired early and are still in a position to go back to work, and just say no, I rule out going back to work. You know, they they are they're constraining the array of options, and so it, one of the few things in some cases that uh, still remains that they have the power to control is over their spending. Um, but the other side of this has to do. With what I would call a dynamic spending policy. So you pre plan that we can allow for um, most of the things that you want to do and most of the lifestyle that you want if you're willing to do what I would call, uh, to a certain extent, some uh, have some timing introduced into some of that lifestyle. Realization. So maybe you post, like I said, use postpone some home improvement, uh, and or postpone uh, and or postpone a vacation that's a little more on the expensive side until such a time as the buoyancy of the markets are are in a position to support that, and then hit the pause button on some of those big bigger expenditures when the markets are down, so that you're not pulling money out uh, of the portfolio as as uh, extremely during those uh, down moments.
1: Yeah. And that, that would impact. Um, I, I think part of the, the, the conversation here, too, is <laughs> that would more than likely impact someone who is retired and a pretty aggressive investor because mm-hmm. the market is hurting them sort of to that degree. Yeah. And that's where I, I tell me if your experience is different, but I don't have many aggressive retiree investors. I can't think of one off the top of my head.
2: Uh, I have, uh, yeah, I have one or two who uh, I would say are pretty aggressive. And that's and that's actually how they made their wealth was all their lives. They were just aggressive, 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 and that was rewarded. And so okay. they've learned the lesson that for them, uh, they're comfortable with it. And that's how they've, you know, they've yeah they've, and they're financially succeeded as well as they have. But you're right. For the most part, that's not characteristic of most retirees. Okay.
1: So I'm going to continue on then just because uh, we spent a lot of time in preparing. Okay, uh, (laughs) So to end the preparation topic, I'm going to summarize what we've touched on and, and please add anything, any other bullet points. But first is You consider your risk tolerance, risk capacity, rate of return, and spending flexibility or inflexibility when when you're making these uh, these decisions. You make sure you have a end goal that you're focused on and you're building building towards, Mm -hmm. uh, because that will help you. That'll help in determining your determining your required rate of return, but that'll also help you stay focused in in a time of volatility. So that that's all part of the financial plan or investment planning process we touched on touched on both of those are there any other things that you think are worth noting to prepare for volatility and and once you we complete that we'll go into now you're in the middle of a of a highly volatile market
2: what do you do so i'll volunteer two things and then you you maybe if you agree with them as, as uh, salient then why don't you expand on them so I would say number one is going to be a, a, a decision in advance of volatility about the the actual composition of your portfolio so it's mm-hmm. it's the how it's built and then secondly alongside that is a, a predetermined set of rules for how the portfolio will be managed under certain uh, under certain events or under certain environments. In other words, um, some people think about owning a portfolio as truly a buy and hold experience that it never it's never adjusting. that's I, I think that one doesn't need to have uh, the presumption that the portfolio can never adjust. They just need to have they need to have a policy that's determined in advance about what any adjustments will will be made and what triggers those adjustments. Not my emotions, not that I'm freaking out about market volatility. And when I freak out about market volatility, I go to cash, no, that's not a good rule. But but some, some objective, measurable uh, triggers for adjustments to the portfolio, I think that actually is perfectly... Uh, justifiable and valid. So, uh, again, market or pardon me, the portfolio composition, and then the portfolio management—a set of predefined um, decisions about all of that—so that when you get into the heat of the okay. moment and your emotions are running high, you don't you don't over you've committed to those policies and you stay with those policies. I think that's all a part of the preparation process.
1: I completely agree. Uh, portfolio, comp I, I would also, and I think you're touching on this, but constru- portfolio construction and composition to me are a little bit different. Okay. Construction is how you build the framework of the portfolio, whereas to me, composition is what's actually in the portfolio. Okay.
2: Fair enough. Good uh, distinction. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got those, and
1: but uh, the rules, building those rules and, and then staying disciplined uh, with that, yeah, taking... In advance, taking emotion out of them. Mm -hmm. And I would also say, depending on what your rules are, if you're able to automate them to to further take emotion out of it, I think that that will also make it helpful.
2: I agree Um, with that.
1: So it it goes back to planning just different aspects, right? Uh, uh, Mm -hmm. One is planning more of your life uh, from a goal perspective uh, and building around that. And the other goes around planning your uh, portfolio. Uh, and how you construct it, what's in it, the composition of it, as well as what triggers any adjustments in uh, a time when the markets have volatility.
2: Right. So uh, can I tell a little story? So uh, when I was, um, b- before I was an advisor, actually, I was a trader. And um, I was uh, an, I was introduced to the trading uh first and foremost, as a rule-based trader, and um, and so actually, um, my role at the time, um, without getting deep into the weeds on this one, was to develop statistical models for for trading uh, high frequency, or pardon me, to, for high frequency trades on really heavily traded technology stocks. This is back in 20 some years ago. And so um, right away, I saw the virtue of having measured objectively um, how things work and then stati- because statistics are, the statistical analysis was measuring things and then you could apply the findings from that statistical analysis to be sort of ruthlessly guiding your behavior, even when your emotions said, no, 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 Uh, that you followed the statistical model. And and at least at a probabilistic level, you had some, I would say, an improved chance of actually hitting an outcome. Once, though, I I and the others with whom I was trading started to get a little bit um, overconfident about how these models were working. We started making a a fairly significant mistake, which was we would start to override those models. We started to think of ourselves as having some degree of knowledge that was higher than it actually was. And so we would apply our subjective um, overrides to these models. In almost every case, there were some exceptions, but in almost every case, the outcome of doing so was adverse. And so what I learned early on was that, or at least the, the, the lesson that I drew early on, and not everyone shares the same lesson, is that it is far, far better to have a set of rules that you follow um, th- rather than th- having a degree of confidence in yourself that uh, your, subjective, uh, your subjective reasoning is going to prevail in the moment of truth. Do you, how do, do you look at that in a similar way?
3: Yeah, I completely agree, Eric. Having these rules, guidelines, policies all set up in place. And like how Roshan said it, just being disciplined in them really will really help people navigate during times of market volatility and really help, like you say, take out that subjectivity and then just being able to keep to these um, rules and guidelines to so you won't have to make emotional decisions, mm-hmm. I think is extremely important because once emotion comes into it, once maybe, like you said, overconfidence comes to it, mm-hmm. then you're really getting away from the ultimate plan and rules that help get you to this point to, to begin with. So mm-hmm. I think those are, that's a really great story.
2: So anyway, I, I, I we've we've got a lot of th- uh, threads of this conversation that are still sort of active right now, and I realize, uh, Roshan, you never came back and really answered Adrian's question. I think.
3: yeah, it wasn't on purpose. I forgot the question. And <laughs> I started getting into it. It's okay. I know when we record these podcasts, and we come up with so many great points and it's just, we love just drawing them out and really diving deep for our listeners. So it was basically, you have um, investors that might have like a certain risk tolerance and they say, oh, I'm a super aggressive investor. I'm always going to go for those, you know, big returns and I will accept like the losses. But then times of like market volatility, the markets pull back and they're like, you know, I, I'm not comfortable. They're kind of really realizing their uh, risk tolerance that they really have? Yeah, so very, very good question. I'm glad we
1: came back to it. And um, I'll tell you, I've learned over the years that uh, the general risk questionnaires that are out there, and um, I don't think they're they're that great just because I don't think you can capture someone in a, in a 10 or 20 or even 50 question thing, their risk tolerance. I also believe that what's going on in the markets influences people's risk tolerance Mm -hmm. so as the markets are going up you tend to have more people that are uh you know aggressive when the market's going down you have more people that tend to be conservative so in addition to the general questions i like to compare and i love using 2008 because the markets got crushed in 2008 so someone comes into me and they say okay i'm an aggressive investor and let's say they have hundred thousand dollars to to invest, and uh, that we go through the questionnaire. The hundred thousand uh, aggressive sh- is everything lines up as aggressive. I then will sit down with them and say, okay, so if we have our two thousand eight all over again, the market crashes, your one hundred thousand dollars is now worth sixty six thousand. Can you wait until it recovers, or do you want to make a change? And uh, I have various numbers for various risk tolerances to line that up, but um, I also think to a certain degree they've got to convince me of that answer because I will continue the conversation, right? So if they just say, yeah, I could, I could do that, I'll, I'll kind of dig deeper. Now, that's an extreme because usually... As I said, most of my clients aren't super aggressive investors, Mm -hmm. so we're dealing with a a lower number of loss in 08, but I I like uh, revisiting that and and, and using numbers that apply to their portfolio, Mm -hmm. so just to try to make it as real as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the summary to your question is, I don't really have that many people changing risk tolerances when they see this market volatility, but I go really... Uh, deep with them to determine their risk tolerance at the beginning and to not only via the general questionnaires, but via conversation uh, as well.
2: All right, so let let me see if I think, so Adrian, do you feel like that was the answer? Your did you do you feel like he answered your question?
3: Yeah, that, those are some uh, good points that he had. Um, mm-hmm. the, que- the questionnaire is a really great way of doing it, and I like what you said. You use their numbers that they have to make it more realistic mm-hmm. to them. I think is a is a really great strategy and mm-hmm. kind of really paints a better picture for them.
2: Mm-hmm. Agreed. So uh, I'm inclined to have at least some part of our conversation today to talk about the other big um, topic in this, which is the composition and construction of a portfolio. And so do you feel like the two of you are ready to sort of shift over into that zone? Yes, please. Okay, so um, so I'm not uh, I'm not sure I'm making I'm, i I know the distinction you're making I'm not just sure which of the two terms that you're using for you know which is which so the construction the composition I think construction means the overall framework and then the composition is the selecting of the elements that go within that overall framework is that what
1: you're saying exactly so to overly simplify it I mm. think uh, if we go through all of our varying questionnaires and determine you're a moderate investor. And in this example, let's just say we define moderate as half stocks and half bonds. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the construction part. Now, I also use multiple strategies within it. Mm -hmm. So this is very overly simplifying. But then the composition are, okay, well, what bonds are in the bond half and what stocks are in the stock half? Mm -hmm
2: okay good with you there so uh l- why don't you talk a little bit then about some of the things that um the the things that you put into a portfolio at the construction level and uh what's the role that those different parts play
1: so um i'll give you some background on, on this on this first i Entered the business because of how much I love the investing side of it. Mm-hmm. So I started in in college study finance, and then I've researched and read about anytime I hear there's an investment strategy out there, I want to learn about it.
2: Yeah, right. right.
1: And what I found uh, as a consistent thing with these varying strategies is you'll get a disclaimer that says... Um, can have extended periods of underperformance, right. right? Which basically means for a few years it won't do well, right? So what I what what that led me to over over time is saying, well, let's use all of them that we can, mm-hmm. right? So if we have some, if if uh, instead of saying put all your money in modern portfolio theory or all your money in momentum or all your money in growth or all your money in value, I want to use all of them mm-hmm. because the thought being is hopefully their extended periods of underperformance don't overlap. Right. The data suggests they don't. Mm-hmm. And that will lead to a smoother portfolio uh, for mm-hmm. you as the investor, right? Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, um, for most clients, I'm trying to ensure uh, a happy retirement, not trying to make the most money for them, mm-hmm. right? So to ensure the happy retirement, I need my rates of returns to be as smooth as possible. Mm-hmm for the for the client so as we're looking at the construction of the portfolio for me that means what portion of their money gets allocated to all of these different strategies mm-hmm. the uh, momentum the modern portfolio theory the value the growth side of the uh, of the portfolio and really if there's anything else that that tends to to work, if we can implement a portion of their portfolio to it, I'm, I'm open. I'm open to mm-hmm. to that. I'm not trying to find new stuff. I want things with a track record. Right. But I'm open to, to trying these things. So then, when we construct the portfolio, and we say this part is modern portfolio, this part is momentum, where I'm the next step is then what securities go in the portfolio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, the rules you mentioned on uh, how to react in market volatility vary based on these strategies. Mm-hmm. So we will consider where the markets are at the time because if we think the markets are overvalued and one of the strategies is just a buy and hold strategy, I'll say, okay, wait, I think I want you to have a little bit of less in there because overall it appears to me the markets are overvalued. Whereas if, uh, once again, the markets appear overvalued and I've got another strategy that dynamically will shift you to protect your portfolio, I'd say, well, let's put a little bit more in this strategy because I believe the markets are overvalued. Mm -hmm. So that's the construction to me. It starts with taking all these different strategies, incorporating them to your portfolio, figuring out what percentage of your portfolio goes into each of these strategies while considering where the markets are currently. And then each of these strategies have their own rules with how to how to react towards volatility. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. All right. So um, with that, I I agree with that, and I actually love the fact that you've approached it with such um, a well considered well-researched sort of an approach and recognizing the, the sort of eclectic approach that you're bringing precisely because you're trying to smooth returns and you recognize that none of those strategies is always going to be, uh, the, 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 um, unrivaled winner. I tend to be more of a value investor and a tactical investor. And, um, as a result in a period where, where, um, value has really been suffering, it's, that's, uh, you know, that's, that commitment has a cost. I, I completely acknowledge that. So I admire you for having, um, having made it a bit more well, a lot more. It sounds like diversified in that respect. From a from a philosophical or maybe philosophical, it's just from a methodological perspective. Let's talk about then. So that's the construction. Let's talk about the composition. So what goes into that 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 framework and and why? What's the role that different parts are playing within that framework?
1: So when you look at um the modern portfolio theory approach that's based on uh, constructing an efficient portfolio. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. once we've got the risk tolerance, we then say, okay, how much do we allocate towards stocks and bonds? Mm-hmm. And then we'll I'll typically look towards uh, like an, uh, an indexing approach there. Mm-hmm. When you look at momentum, now that's going to be within the framework of the risk tolerance. Are you a moderate, moderately aggressive, conservative? What's your What's your risk tolerance? that'll give us the framework of stocks and bonds, but then the selection of the holdings will be based on uh, more that momentum approach. Mm-hmm. And Eric, I think it's worth noting that um, uh, maybe 50 years ago, people would have said tactical and value can't go together. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think what you're doing is actually pretty uh, dynamic as well mm-hmm. uh, because There, there are many that probably still today say you can't line them up, and I I don't want to get too technical on that. But, but uh, I just thought it was an important point worth noting that that uh, technical and value together
2: is very unique. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if you if I can, I'm going to drift into sort of talking about a few of the big. tools the the widely um, discussed and most commonly used tools that people employ in their portfolios to deal with volatility in part and to balance their desire for growth uh, and and a, a capacity of that portfolio to support them uh, with income, uh, it, during their retirement years. And then, then I would like to, if, if you think it'd be useful and interesting for our listeners, uh, talk about some of the more recent, um, tools that have emerged or some of the tools that have been out there for a while, but that don't necessarily quickly enter into the conversation. Is that, is this, do you think that'd be fruitful for us to talk about a little bit? Yes, let's do it. Okay. So when we talk about stocks, and bonds, both of those fit into a large category that we would talk with, that we would characterize as uh, liquid investment strategies. When I say liquid, it means I can decide today to get into them and there's a, there's an active market for me to do them. I, I won't have to search around for days and days to see a way to buy a stock. I can do it in seconds or and similarly, I can sell a stock in seconds. And I can do that with bonds as well. So we're talking about these, these tools, the liquid tools, a stock usually is designed to be, oh, historically at least, the stocks as a group have grown more than any of the other major building blocks of a portfolio. So, so first stocks, I'm simplifying this dramatically, but stocks generally have grown the most Cash has grown the least, bonds in between. And, but when it comes to when it, the, the inverse of that is that stocks uh, par, as part of their growth, they tend to have the most up and down um, movement. Where cash has almost no up or down movement and bonds in between. So in, in one sense, if we were limiting ourselves to a universe in which our portfolios could be built from stocks, bonds, and cash, and by the way, we're not limited to that, but if we were, then we'd, have, we'd, we'd make some trade-offs. And that's why when you earlier said, Roshan, that a moderate portfolio, let's just arbitrarily define it for the purpose of this conversation as 50% stocks and 50% bonds, you've got one part in there that's a growth engine and another part in there that's more of a protection component. And the beauty is not always, but most of the time, or at least a lot of the time, they are, they act inversely. So that if stocks are plunging, um, you know, some categories of bonds actually have have a counter reaction to that and will rise somewhat, not as much as the stocks have fallen, but they'll rise somewhat to dampen, some of that the impact on the overall portfolio from that movement of stock so the, these are three main building blocks and we can add some more that gradually have kind of made their way into that commodities would be an example precious metals as a one subset of commodities would be an example uh And even the stocks and the bonds themselves can be subdivided. So there's Mm -hmm. big and little companies. There's companies that are in your home country, and then companies that are outside your home country, and so on and so forth. There's many ways of slicing and dicing them, and we won't. We don't necessarily need to get into that right now. But then there are other tools that can be and I'm, we're not advocating any one of these tools above or, you know, we're not we're actually we're not advocating any tools in this podcast. That's a conversation for you and an advisor uh, to have together. But but let's talk about some of those other tools, because Roshan, I know you uh, you use some of these other tools and I use some of these other tools. And it's probably useful for us to talk about what, what role those potentially can play in a portfolio. Especially uh, the role they play in moments of market volatility.
1: Well, let me actually tell you, Eric. I, I think we should uh, dedicate a time just on cor- portfolio construction and composition. Okay. And these tools, um, because I want to get uh, us uh, with the topic of volatility. And I, I know they definitely apply, mm-hmm. but I want to say let's. Let's say you've done these things. you've built your portfolio, you've got your goals mm-hmm. you've gotten uh, you've gotten to the point where your portfolio is built. so now it's live it's going it, it's in the market, and now you've got this volatility mm-hmm. you've got things moving, you have this huge swing, you've got the fastest correction in history of six days. What do you do then mm
2: hmm Okay.
1: What would you suggest? So I, I call you and I, I'm very happy with everything you've done for me, Eric. We've built the perfect portfolio for me, but the markets are getting crushed and I'm getting scared, right? As we mm-hmm. discussed earlier. And I pick up mm-hmm. the phone and I say, Eric, I'm scared. Let's move everything to cash. What do you say to me?
2: All right. Well, it's going to. I guess part of the answer is it depends, because to a certain extent, it depends on the client. But I would say, one in that moment of truth, I would say, let's try and understand first of all, um, this isn't just the market out of nowhere moving down. There's probably some explanation that has it triggered people's psychology, and let's step back and try to look at that in the context of longer history because right now as we're having this conversation it seems that the two sort of precipitating events are number 1 and, and you might disagree with my analysis so please feel free to strongly disagree if you if you if you do disagree with this but one is a kind of fundamental under underlying explanation of no, let me I'll actually I'll do it in reverse order. So one is this sort of what I'll call the proximate cause, which is a heightened fear about the uh, coronavirus itself, um, the COVID-19. And a, a subsequent sort of stemming from that fear about the, the virus itself, um, is not just the threat to human health and potentially the threat, you know, to on a broad uh, basis from a public health standpoint, but also its potential impact on markets and on companies as people elect to not go on cruises, not to, you know, not uh, engage in various kinds of economic activity, maybe not go out to restaurants or public events as much, or whatever the case might be. The impact of those. Reductions in spending, what is that going to do uh, for the general economy? And as people anticipate what that might mean, they say, well, maybe these stocks aren't going to have the same kinds of earnings that they otherwise would have had. And as a result, I need to revise my, ex- my expectations about their growth or their, their, the profitability of these companies. And with that, I, I need to revise my assessment of what these are worth. It doesn't happen quite that rationally or that systematically, but it, res- it culminates in a sell order in some cases, at least at the, at the broad market level. The other thing that's going on right now that I think is significant is a, a bit of a, a battle uh, over energy prices. So without getting deep into the weeds on that, there's a little bit of a dust up between the, the, the Ru- Russia and Saudi Arabia about how much uh, oil ought to be pumped and what. You know, to the, whether the there should be cutbacks to support the price of oil, or whether they're ought to, they just ought to open the floodgates to punish uh, some of the uh, other players in the oil space, and uh, so oil companies in particular and energy companies in particular have taken a massive beating, and. Um, and that's technical terms. For us. They've lost more. They've declined more in price than uh, a lot of other companies have done. And so, as a result, uh, you know, there's that sort of uh, would contagion effect. I would say of watching a bunch of big name companies decline a lot in reaction to that catalyst. So that's my my um, assessment of what's triggering this right now. Would you first of all? Would you agree that that's approximately right, or would you alter that somehow?
3: Yeah, I agree, and it really shows how you have to look at the macroeconomic events that will really affect the portfolio. Like you said, a client, you know, wants to know what's going on. You really just got to show them like the macroeconomic events that are going on, how it's affecting the portfolio. Mm -hmm. And I know you don't want to dive too too much into like the portfolio, but it's also important to look at the correlation on the positions that you have to see um how they're being affected and how much exposure you really have to these events for your portfolio. So mm-hmm. it's just really analyzing that aspect and again going back to what we were touched on the podcast, going back to their goals, seeing if they're still on track, seeing if they're still going to be fine for retirement and, and beyond. Just to really hit on all those points that you really began the relationship with the client with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Eric, if I if I call you uh well first as
1: are you getting, um, uh, a lot of these calls?
2: Not a lot, but some, how about you?
1: Similar. Uh, I not, not many, but I've got, I've gotten a few, I've it's been refreshing. I've gotten a few people also that have said, Hey, with this market going down, is it a buying opportunity? So I've gotten both. Yeah. I've gotten the fear right. and the opportunity mm-hmm. call, mm-hmm. but uh, now going back to that call though, if I, if I call you and, um, and I'm worried about where the markets are. The first thing you're doing is explaining to me what's going on.
2: Yeah. So let's like, try and overall. step out of emotion and into into uh, some degree. And we can't completely shut off the emotion, but let let's have some degree of sort of analysis of what might be going on here. And it's not so much that okay now I have uh, now I have an analysis of what's going on here. Therefore, I don't feel fearful. No. Instead, what it allows us to do is to calibrate severity of the of the of what we believe might be the catalyst for this downward movement, and now having having identified what are possibly the catalysts for that, we can look back in history at other events. Where there was a sudden, there was sudden new information, or there was a sudden shift in, or there was some what I'll call external event, exogenous event that that uh, triggered a, people's reassessment of the value of these stocks, and with that, then um, with that, there was a market move. We can see how much the market did did or did not move in that time frame. And then whether or not that was catastrophic at that point in time.
1: So you're, uh, I'm just going back to what you're, first you're defining what's going on. Why, why are the markets moving? Then you're, you're saying, well, comparing, comparing this to something similar historically, here's what, uh, what has happened.
2: Right. So I'm going to give a a, let's just go back a little bit in time and and I'm not going to do each and every one. But let's say uh, when in the first Gulf War in the or no, let's go back even a little bit further. So let's go back to 1987 and where we had a roughly 25 percent drop in the S&P 500 in a day or Mm -hmm. two. Long term capital management. Well, so in 1987, it, so we, uh, long-term capital management, 1997, I think, but 1987, right. you, you, about a year later, you're back where you were. And so it, it was bad, but boy, that was 25% drop was a lot worse, you know, in a, in a day or two from just yeah. an emotional standpoint. Than what what's just now happened, or in the early '90s when the first Gulf War and there was sort of saber rattling going on, and you know concerns about what Saddam Hussein is going to do, markets decline a little bit, but a year later, more or less, they're back where they were and moving higher again. You mentioned long term capital management, which I think is '97 or '98, yeah, and also '98. It, the Asian contagion, I think, was the name given to the the banking crisis in Asia. I think it was Malaysian banks and Thai banks. In uh, I think it was '97, so those were about a year apart. But boy, oh boy, the market just continued at that point to rip higher. Um, you had Y2K. Now that Y2K was supposed to, you know, be the be all and all, <laughs> yeah. and and it was like the whole thing, the whole civilization was going to come crashing down because computers weren't going to work. Well, okay, so the internet bubble did burst, but it wasn't Y2K that caused it. It was that people had bought so much uh, because of their fear about Y2K had gotten so much money into revising their technology prior to the to the transition to 2000. That now they made a lot of technology spending and they, they didn't need to make new technology spending for another two or three years. And so technology companies saw their revenues down and so that they declined. And we can just go over these kind of over and over again, uh, where we can identify these things that after a period of time, it you know, in retrospect, if you just look at the long, long course of markets, or even, let's say, a five and 20 year 5, 10, 20 year uh, time frame, usually things which conform to the to the time frames that most of our clients are really concerned with. Our clients, we all feel it in the moment, but we need our portfolios, as you said much earlier in this podcast, we need our portfolios to sustain us over a long period of time. So what's, what's the impact on the outcome over another 10, 15, 20, or 30 years? That's really the germane question, it seems to me. And if if I say over the course of these twenty or thirty years that every single time something disrupts me emotionally that I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to I'm going to uh, react uh, and get outside my plan is that going to lead to a better set of outcomes for my twenty or thirty year my twenty or thirty year uh, retirement income from this portfolio or will I be better off if I if I don't go in and override my rules and don't go in and intervene every time it's uncomfortable what's happening in the moment.
1: So I want to highlight that conversation. A few things that, that stand out to me, not specifically what you said, but what, what you're going over. First, you're defining what's going on now. Second, you're looking at historically what has happened. Mm-hmm. Third, you're referencing what are your rules and follow those rules. Not, don't override the rules. I think mm-hmm. that's key. You have rules in place, and you're choosing to follow or override them. Third, you're pointing... Uh, that's fourth, actually. But you're pointing them towards their uh, long-term goals and how this decision will impact that. Yeah, there, there are definitely people out there that have gotten lucky with timing timing the market. Yes. But that's not a consistent thing that you can expect to be able to do. Right. Because of that reason, it's not one of your rules. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not... One of your rules is not, hey, when I get worried, jump out because I was right about it last time, right? Mm-hmm. there. So they, for that reason, I like to point our listeners to follow those steps themselves. So first, we got a great breakdown by Eric about what's going on right now. So figure out what's going on. Two, look at what happened historically. Eric gave some great information on that. Uh, three, look at your rules, what rules do you have? And you know what? Maybe you constructed a portfolio without rules because you didn't have the idea until you heard us discussing it. So if you don't have rules to follow, uh, go to the next step, which is: well, what are your? The, what are the end goals here? And what's the best sh- decision for those goals? Are you willing to bet mm-hmm. a year or two of extra work if you're wrong? That you can time the market, right? Because if you're wrong, that's what happens, right? You've got to make up for it at some point. If you pull out and then the markets go up, well, you miss those returns and maybe that means you've got to work a couple years longer or, or vice versa. If you said, okay, I'm calling this as the bottom, moving all my money to stocks today, and then things continue to go down, that will have an adverse effect for the for the long term. Mm-hmm. Um I'll give you a really, really brief story about this. I had a client. This was actually not a client. It's someone I met with to potentially be a client. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I gathered their data, started their financial plan. Back then, we would do a phone call to review the data and go over their their goals and their numbers. As I'm going over the data with them, um, the wife suddenly says, uh, all right, I've got to go. We'll talk later. Mid-call, we had like an hour book. It's about a half hour in. So... I eventually reach out to them later, and then I find out that this this is in about 2001, 2002. I find out that she had managed the portfolio for the family the whole time, around 2000, 99, 2000, close to the peak. uh, Her husband's hearing from his buddies at parties about how much money they're making in the markets, and they're not making that much. He decides to take over, goes all in stocks at the peak, loses all this money. They were thinking about retiring uh, in around that 2000-2002 time frame and what caused her to hang she politely hung up on me but it was it was just in a, in a rush was that they were going to retire that year and then my analysis I had just showed them well you got to work for 10 more years and it was just because in this case the emotion of greed got involved wow. hearing that everyone else is making a killing seeing the news of markets going up, they made a change and you know sort of uh, violated the rules uh, in the household of, well, you're going to handle the investments and, and flipped who was handling it mm-hmm. because of the opposite emotion of what people are feeling right now. I think people are fearful now. That was the emotion of greed. Mm-hmm. So gentlemen, I think we touched on what you need to do when mm-hmm. there is this volatility in the market. Uh, we touched on a lot of things before. We will have to spend time on portfolio composition and construction, getting that risk tolerance going. Do either of you have anything to add on uh, volatility? I think the summary I'd say is A, plan for it in advance and B, stick to your rules and don't let emotions get the best of you when you're dealing with
3: that volatility.
2: Agreed.
3: Adrian, Eric, anything to add? Well, you pretty much touched on all the areas. I think we got a, a lot of great content for our listeners, like you said, really stick to those rules, stay disciplined, and, you know, always be prepared for times of volatility.
1: Great. Excellent. Well, I want to say to all of our listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, We really appreciate your time. We hope you find this helpful uh, and that we can help you towards your retirement goals. This has been the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Please let your friends know about us. Give us five stars. We're here to help you. So, Please reach out to us via email, uh, social media, via our website, and we hope you have the financial independence of your dreams. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. If you found this show helpful, gained knowledge, or enjoyed the time you spent with Roshan, Eric, and Adrian, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast or to ask us a question, go to retirewithroshan.com. That's retire with roshan dot All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arete Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arete Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening.